0: On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses a saucer full of secrets. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album I'm Joe Beauclair and on this this episode of Progressive Palaver. I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we cover Pink Floyd's second album, A Saucer Full of Secrets. Gentlemen, welcome to our second Pink Floyd episode. A saucer full of secrets. Very a uh, lot of transition going on in, in in this album. I'm I'm pretty excited about this. I'm not gonna lie. I've uh, I've really enjoyed this early part of the uh, the Floyd catalog. There have been uh, a lot of pleasant surprises waiting for me here.
1: I still had to beat it up. I mean, I I slagged it and just kind of went after it and just just found all the faults and then fell back in love with it within like three days.
0: <laughs> you know, Ken. Whatever gets the job done for you, I I'm here to support you.
1: <laughs> it's like a, it's like our brothers, you know, our friends, uh, each other. You know, you you, you kind of got to dig in and, and and you know poke somebody in the ribs and then find out what they're made of and then appreciate them after the fact.
0: That's cool. So we have a couple of housekeeping items that I think we need to take care of before maybe we get into a saucer full of secrets. So due to circumstances beyond our control, Paul, you were not able to join us on the last episode for Piper at the Gates of Dawn. (laughs) I don't know if it was circumstances beyond our control. (laughs) I passed out on my couch and slept through the flabber. Be be, be that as it may, you what? were you you were not present for for the palaver where we did some of our uh, our, our Pink Floyd Prelude. So I I wanted to you know maybe give you a couple of moments if you wanted to maybe share some of your you know exp- overall experiences with the band um, before we we get into the particulars. Wow. Well, I wish I would have
2: heard some of the other um, the other ones. So you'll have to keep me up to speed as as we go. But um, it's funny. My earliest rem- well, I guess I probably got into Pink Floyd hearing snippets of The Wall, and being influenced by those. Um, none of my none, none of my sisters really seemed to be into Floyd. Um, early on, but I, re- I distinctly remember being in like when I was still playing little league, and I played with uh, on a team with Bob Morrison, and he lived down the street, and we would we would ha- catch in his front yard, and uh, his older brother was kind of mixed up with like the Rob Ronky and Rich Petrus of the of the day, and I remember one of those guys like you know riding their BMX bikes with their boombox blasting. Yeah. Another brick in the wall, part two.
0: That was a skill, by the way. Yeah, I to do that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, there was this vibe about Pink Floyd that they were there was just something different about them compared to every other band. And uh, and we, you know, we would watch the wall at you know whatever events at school that would have us in middle school that would have us at the band room. For some reason, we would all be gathered around watching the wall on uh, video. It seemed like that's what everyone wanted to do get together and watch the vhs version of the wall because it was just so crazy and artistic and wacky and and like nothing really that i had been exposed to because i was in middle school right um and then you're kidding in unami in the band room yeah yeah exactly it was like some ridiculous (laughs) volleyball fundraising tournament and while we weren't playing or something like that, we were all some for some reason in the band room watching the wall on one of those ridiculous, you know, like the the big wheelie things that would have the, the, the TV the on the TV cart. The, yeah.
0: <laughs> with yeah. with yeah. with with the freaking VHS thing that was, you know, yes. probably what a foot and a half by a foot and a half, about yes, six inches deep and weighed eight hundred pounds.
2: That's mm-hmm. why you needed that huge cart so that you could push it around. <laughs> so so yeah so um you know and then you know i fast forward to just experiences in like you know like ninth grade i think i went on a ski trip with with um my with my sister donna and my parents and someone uh, somehow i had a copy of dark side of the moon and Donna was like, "This is the greatest album. You have to listen to this." And um, I remember listening to it on the plane and just sort of being like, "Overcome with like, wow, this is unbelievable." And so, uh, yeah, and then uh, and then uh, just I remember us driving around. I remember driving around. I was in a summertime uh, summertime play with John Delaney, if you guys remember him, mm-hmm. and uh, we listen to have a cigar and wish you were here on repeat uh those two songs the whole entire uh uh you know commuting back and forth to doing that and um that's what inspired me to to purchase a 12 string um really yeah yeah i never knew why you went that direction that's awesome yeah yeah. so uh yeah, and then, you know, full-on, I saw them, I guess we saw them in our senior year, maybe. I remember going to see them at JFK mm-hmm. for a momentary lapse of reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I, Ken, had some discussions about that cassette in uh, in physics class when we were supposed to be studying uh, <laughs> wave, wave motion. Water wave theory, <laughs> <And> motion <laughs> ripples, reflecting pool. Jeez. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and then you know, in in college, uh, just completely, you know, one hundred percent turned around. You know, all of those albums, and you know, you know, as I was listening to these earlier albums, and I, I, you know, I said a little bit of it on our group chat. The thing that's struck me is that I don't, for for whatever reason, you know, I call them like the Big Four, right? Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here. Animals and The Wall, like those albums to me are just like everything I listen to from Pink Floyd is compared to those four and it's, I can't escape it for whatever reason. And, um, I, you know, I played you guys, <laughs> I played you guys a little bit of the snippet of Corporal Clegg, uh, Corporal Clegg, 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 can't get it right right now. And, and Waiting for the Worms. And ever since I did that, I, c- I cannot get the wall out of my head. And I've been literally, I haven't even played it. I've just been singing it front to back. <laughs> and so, so <laughs> last <laughs> night driving from work to a high school hockey game, I actually dialed up the wall and was listening to it. And I was just in my glory, absolutely loving it until, um, until, uh, Hey, you but came the on the that- yeah. Hey, yeah, hey, you <laughs> came on, and I was like, "Fuck!"
1: <laughs> it's like this motherfucking <laughs> song. <laughs> All right, um, Paul, I think you missed it—a a huge chunk. But um, uh, we played music together. We we we, we had oh. cohesion. You, me, Jay, Tom, yes. and, it, and Dan. And Dan wasn't available. And we didn't know what to do with ourselves. I remember we this. Had, we had a five-man repertoire, and we threw together an act, and 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 we spent time and i thought it sounded amazing we did mother yeah uh we did another brick in the wall was it was it part one and part two because we We did did, part one and part
2: two i remember and can i remember i don't know how long you worked on the guitar solo to brick uh, another brick in the wall part two but i remember that you pretty much had it note for note um bend for bend um it was pretty spectacular dude
1: well, it, D minor is one of the easier. If you're going to do Gilmore, do that one. Do Brick and the Wall. Mm. I mean, it, it's still him. It's still hard. But I think that's a good place to hop in to Gilmore. Just because it's got that, you know, the disco thing going on. It's, mm. it's really
2: solid beat, not too fast.
1: Um, we have yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, we really didn't have a lot of um, filter going going for that. In, uh not even the real band, right? It was like, you know, we were just piecing things. Wasn't Chris Cherubini playing with us a little bit mm-hmm, during that time? Yeah, too? he was great. He was great.
1: Um, for that, yeah, for that one yeah. jam.
0: Eminem
1: yeah. Gig. And then um, when Dan came back, we did In the Flesh, if I remember correctly, in Young Lust.
2: I remember Young Lust. I don't remember In the Flesh. Okay. Well, well yeah. yeah, I remember Young Lust. We did that. You're right. We did that at a, a field uh, day in uh, high school. For, yeah, it was like some sort of talent show or something. Yeah,
1: yeah. I thought you nailed the uh, the vocals. I thought it was. I mean, I I don't think you knew what a good time was back then, but you faked
2: pretty well. <laughs> I don't think I did either. <laughs> <laughs> I think I also think we were tuned down like a whole step for some reason. I think I think voices were changing and. <laughs> I think I think part of that set was also shot in the dark by Ozzy Osbourne. So uh damn right. Probably a Night Ranger too because that was always a standby. <laughs> Word. Well, shall we?
0: Awesome. Well, one other thing in terms of housekeeping, and I don't remember if it was on the palaver or in the group text, whatever it was, one of you brought up this somewhat garbagey book that I had purchased um, 100 or thousand and one <laughs> albums <laughs> you must hear before you die and so I was inspired to to look and see what Pink Floyd albums are in here because after I bought this I honestly haven't even looked at it I, I kind of paged through it and I'm like this is a bunch of bullshit and I put it away I mean there's a 100- a thousand and one albums <laughs> Well, it, it, it turns out they're they're arranged uh, chronologically, which I find interesting. But there are four Pink Floyd albums that are in this book. As you might imagine, Dark Side of the Moon, The Wall, Wish You Were Here, and The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which wow. I thought to be an interesting choice. Um, so I, I, I didn't know if you guys wanted to maybe take a moment and... Let's peruse what this, this book has to say about this. Yeah. Now, each the, the way it's set up, it, it, has, um, it, you, it has the album art, it has the track listing, it has a short little blurb that we can read, and usually there's a quote by some member of the band. So in this particular case... Um, we have a quote by Sid Barrett from nineteen seventy one. I don't think I'm easy to talk about. I've got a very irregular head, so
2: mm. there you go.
0: Okay, so are you ready for some hyperbole? <laughs> As the house band of the U- UFO Club in the mid nineteen sixties, Pink Floyd launched a psychedelic musical revolution in London, rivaling that which the Grateful Dead created in San Francisco. <laughs> Uh, Sure (laughs) Despite the the deceiving moniker Stolen from the bluesmen Pink Anderson and Floyd Council Pink Floyd were not a group of shabby hippies Expanding on black music But a band of fashionably dressed Architecture and art students Searching for their own sound The Piper at the Gates of Dawn Achieved that goal with Spellbinding results Mm. The album's success stemmed from how well the band balanced the sonic exploration of their live show with the song craft behind early hits Arnold Lane and See Emily Play. Nobody wrote better psychedelic singles than Sid Barrett. Even Astronomy Domine orbited with a familiar pop structure. However... The songwriter was clearly fighting for control of the music as well as his mind, as bassist Roger Waters, pianist Richard Wright, and drummer Nick Mason pushed f- for further space travel. This tension bred the effectiveness of the baroque "Matilda Mother" with and the jazzy um, "Power Talk H." The album centerpiece is the 10-minute. Rocket Ride Interstellar Overdrive, which features the best non-David Gilmour guitar work of the band's career. The the group were soon to lose Barrett to a mental breakdown and gain Gilmour's epic guitar leads. Waters became the creative force and fueled a fascination with conceptual song cycles. Pink Floyd would reach greater heights, notably on Dark Side of the Moon, With the Piper, they managed to capture the essence of 1960s psychedelic psychedelia perfectly. So, this is the kind of gem that is in this book.
2: I don't necessarily disagree with that last statement. Um, I think if you ever read from them that book again, Joe, on the palaver, you should do so um, using the voice of Peterman from uh, Seinfeld. I think I think it would fit nicely.
0: I will practice that. So it won't come up again until dark side. So um, you know, keep you that know, in mind. I just watched a YouTube video uh
2: where Nick Mason was talking about them playing at the UFO club. It didn't he didn't he didn't seem to romance it quite the same way. He seemed to downplay it quite a bit. Like it was kind of a drag.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, don't get me started on Nick Mason, because I was telling Ken <laughs> before we got started, I still I still haven't made any significant headway into this book. And I kind of skipped ahead because I wanted to kind of get the backstory behind how the recording went for this album. And he tells the story in such a incoherent, nonlinear fashion. I can't make heads nor tails of what he's trying to say to me. So I'm still very, very frustrated with, uh, with Nick Mason. So, but, but those were the, the housekeeping items that I had. So,
1: Paul, um, is it not the position of the progressive flavor to to, uh, dissect the hyperbolic, like Joe just read to us and (laughs) and possibly put a dose of reality into that wordplay that they have there. Perhaps just throwing that out there.
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, I remember, I just remember Nick Mason on this interview saying it was kind of like a drag, like the UFO Club was actually below a movie theater and they had to wait for all the movies to let out before they could actually start playing. (laughs) Good, good. I I,
0: I, I personally am tickled pink by the best non-Gilmore guitar work in Floyd. Sid Barrett had (laughs) one album and three songs. I mean plus a whole <laughs> bunch of, of unreal. There's uh, not a lot singles. to choose from. So it, I mean it's and Gilmore had fucking decades. So I mean, you know, it's that's yeah. kind of a ridiculous statement as far as I'm concerned.
2: I imagine you guys touched upon in uh in you're talking about Piper at the Gates of Dawn um what appears to be a, a heavy-handed Beatles influence um on some of uh the early Floyd stuff. Um, oh, yeah. Paul, for your benefit.
1: I mean, I talked about the Beatles, but I also talked about the Stones. Okay. And um, I should have m- made mention of the the Who. There was a mod thing going on back then. Mm. Um, and uh, Moody Blues had days of future past in that period, um, it, which is funny when, when people talk about Pink Floyd coming on strong as an amazing band. They didn't have anything close to the Beach Boys didn't have anything close to the Grateful Dead as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, Nights in White Satin is just stellar no matter how you look at it. Rolling Stones had uh, Her Majesty's Satanic Service. And um, so, so, so Pink Floyd is good, but they're just barely getting their steam and, and making their place in, in, in that realm, in, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. And, and because I really did not spend a lot of time in my youth with any of these records, it's really been a joy to go back and listen. And I actually found myself like, I was like, what, when did Sergeant Peppers come out? Like did it come out before this? <laughs> I did the did it same come, thing. Come mm-hmm. out after Like was someone copying off of each other? And mm-hmm. they're kind of contemporaries of each other. These, those two records,
0: and, and, which and is kind of cool. Yeah. We, we had actually covered that explicitly in the last episode because I, I asked myself the exact same question and what it, the way it worked out was Piper was finished recording literally at the exact same time that Sgt. Peppers was released. Now, you know, so the, the possibility for creative crossover was, you know, probably minimal. I, I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know if, you know, being at Abbey Road, they had the ability to hear things. I, I don't know. But, I mean, it wasn't like Abbey Road or um, Sgt. Peppers was out for, you know, six months while they were right. you know, writing new songs. That That, yeah. that is not the case. But, but it's interesting. That's why I kind of like that little
2: tagline at the end of the uh, 1001 book is that, you know, th- the Beatles were trying, I think, were trying to tap into the, you know, psychedelic part of that was happening in music uh, when they did Sgt. Pepper's and Pink Floyd was, was, you know, pretty much avant-garde of the psychedelic scene. So I kind of, like, think those two things jive pretty well together, right? Like, you know, I, I don't want to say, I certainly don't want to sig- say that the Beatles are copying, but the, you know, the Beatles are being inspired by the psychedelic uh, things going on in music, similar that we've seen with Rush being inspired by reggae and other things, and, you know, the police and things like that. Um, and they're showing that in their music, and here's here's Floyd kind of doing it, you know, from the heart. Um,
0: yeah. All right, mm-hmm. so, so Ken, you want to uh, clue us in on, on what was going on in uh, in 1968?
1: Yes, I just waxed poetic about The Grateful Dead, The Who, The Moody Blues, The Rolling Stones. Uh, this is a very interesting time. Um, the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations was October 1966. Um, well... Uh, uh, backing up, May 1966 was even more infamous to the prog crowd. Pet sounds, just Mm. amazing, amazing recording techniques. So when we're talking about um, Pink Floyd, Piper at the Gates of Dawn in in 67, uh, they would have clearly had those influences. Uh, You asked about the Doors last time. I did. Um, Yeah, uh, Strange Days album was September 67. Just a ton of amazing stuff going on in this period, including The Velvet Underground, The Birds, The Mothers of Invention, Vanilla Fudge, Jefferson Airplane, Traffic, The Nice, of course. um, The Pink Floyd Sound toured with The Nice opening for Jimi Hendrix uh, in this early period. Um, jumping into 1968, uh, the birds, vanilla fudge, blood, sweat, and tears, the mothers of invention, uh, the move, uh, Frank Zappa solo stuff, June, uh, 1968. I say this because of the Royal Affair tour, the crazy world of Arthur Brown. And, and in, in the literature, Arthur Brown gets a really good mention, uh, in the comfortably numb book by Blake. Uh, that I recommend on Audible. Yeah. Uh, Ar-
0: uh, Arthur Brown showed up in Nick Mason's book too. And I'm like, Oh, Arthur Brown. I know that dude.
1: hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, he, quite the entertainer, I- I- exactly what was needed at the time to, to breathe some life into, into the, what would you call that? The performance art genre. Yes. Uh huh. June, 1968, Pink Floyd, a saucer full of secrets. So So that's that's what you would have been hearing leading up to this. Really good sophomore
0: effort. As you mentioned, Ken, uh, a saucer full of secrets was released on 29 June 1968. It was uh, released on the label EMI Columbia or Tower in the U.S, I believe it was produced by Norman Smith. The uh, cast of characters included Roger Waters, Richard Wright. David Gilmore joins the the crew with Nick Mason and Sid Barrett. This is the only uh, five-piece release from from Pink Floyd. The track listing is Let There Be More Light, Remember a Day, Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun, Corporal Clegg, Side 2 includes a Saucer Full of Secrets, Seesaw, And Jug Band Blues, A Saucer Full of Secrets, is the second studio album by the English rock band Pink Floyd, released on 29 June 1968 by EMI Columbia in the United Kingdom, following adverts and Melody Maker giving that date, and released on 27 July 1968 in the United States by Tower Records. It is the only album to be credited to the band as a five-piece consisting of Sid Barrett guitar, David Gilmore guitar, Nick Mason drums, Roger Waters bass, and Richard Wright keyboards. Barrett's behavior had become unpredictable during the recording of the album, so David Gilmore was recruited to compliment Barrett, who eventually left the band before the completion of the album. While the prior record had been creatively driven by Barrett as the band's leader and principal songwriter, this album showed a much more diverse set of influences with every member contributing to songwriting and lead vocal roles. Gilmore, new with the band, appears on five songs, all except Remember a Day and Jug Band Blues, while Barrett, in his final appearance on a Pink Floyd album, contributed to three, Remember a Day, Jug Band Blues, and Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. Set the Controls for The Heart of the Sun was the only song all five members appeared on together. The band's drummer Nick Mason has declared A Saucer Full of Secrets to be his favorite Pink Floyd album. Upon release, A Saucer Full of Secrets reached number nine in the UK charts, but it didn't chart in the US until April 2019, peaking at number 158. The album received mostly positive reviews, Though many critics have deemed it inferior to the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, now I have to take exception with that last sentence because <laughs> I, you know, one one of the first things that I was thinking of, you know, as as I started preparing for this, is you know this this sophomore effort, much like we saw um, with Genesis, I think is a huge step in the direction. That the band will eventually go, um, you know, and and not to take anything away from from Piper. Um, I just think that there's there's a lot more strength here in terms of of songwriting and, and things of that nature, so
2: I, you know. I would agree. Okay.
0: and that's a wrap. Yeah, it is. There you go. <laughs> but uh- <laughs> it's better. <laughs> so it it it's it's really interesting though because you have this this transition right and you know we've we've seen this sort of arc before you know uh, and and we talk about certainly on at this time period with with these progressive bands who weren't progressive at the time because they were coming at it from their own thing and they were they were really in a lot of cases they were really young guys who you know, just picked up instruments because they thought it was cool or whatever, and they didn't necessarily know what the hell they were doing. And we've all had, you know, those experiences, you guys earlier than me, where, you know, you're like, well, hey, I can write a song. And, and you know, what you, you know, come up with is, you know, maybe a little rudimentary, if if I can use the phrase. But obviously there's something that, you know, sets people like Pink Floyd apart. And when they keep at it, you start to have that that growth happen. and, and that's what we see here, I think. It's interesting how, you know Roger fills that void um, even even as they're bringing in David Gilmore to sort of, you know cover up for Sid. and that's you know that's an interesting story in and of itself. Um, you know, I, I guess they had had a small tour in the, in the U S and, you know, where, and I guess, you know, Sid was, was becoming more and more erratic and it was wearing everyone out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, you know, Mason talks about this a little bit in his book, not in depth, but a little bit about how, you know, it was, it was kind of uncomfortable when they brought David in, they brought because at at the time from a business point of view the four members of pink floyd plus the two managers had a a an integrated six-way partnership mm. david gilmour was was brought in as sort of a a paid performer to sort of you know mm-hmm. you know make up for anything that sid wasn't actually doing live and and so essentially dave dave gilmour's original role as it was described was you know, to to be a Sid Barrett mimic, and there's a quote from one of the managers who said, "You know, David Gilmore could play Sid Barrett better than Sid could," um, which is, mm-hmm. it, you know, an yeah. interesting way to to do it. And you know, we we had we had a similar conversation when we were talking in Genesis about the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and, and Gabriel's, you know, trials at that time, and the, the band members not being particularly sympathetic you know nick mason describes it in in similar terms of you know we basically just one day and you guys have heard the story they're they're, they're in a car going to a gig and someone says hey do we pick up sid and someone else says nah, let's not bother and that was <laughs> that was pretty much it and and that's exactly yeah. how he describes it and he says it sounds harsh and it was And he said, even, even though Sid was our friend and he said, you know, we all wanted to help him, but we didn't know what the hell to do. And we were all focused on, you know, becoming, you know, big rock stars or whatever. So, you know, I mean, we've all been, you know, young people, we, we understand how, how your perception can, can change and and everything else. And it's, you know, maybe it's, it's a little, it's a little sad that that happened, but, and so as a result of this, you know we we've talked a little bit in the palaver about um you know the the Waters Gilmore thing and we'll get into that more but so keep in mind when when Sid was asked to leave the band they essentially had to dissolve the partnership and what happened was the two managers went off with they kept Sid and then um Roger Nick and right. Rick kept the name
2: yeah the managers thought Sid had more commercial viability They could They could Mm -hmm. be more successful with him So I I I, I guess they didn't realize the band was leaving him behind For gigs at that point in time
0: Yeah So I I just want to read something here Because I I just found it interesting um, When I was reading this Since what we had at the time was a six-way partnership Roger, Rick, and I didn't even have a majority To claim the band name And with Sid's added importance As the main songwriter His claim was probably stronger Surprisingly, perhaps, this was never an issue. Just as the partnership had been set up as an eminently equitable arrangement, so too dismantling it was conducted in a civilized manner. A meeting was held with everybody, including Sid, at Peter's house in early March. Peter says, We fought to keep Sid in. I didn't really know David, although I knew he was a talented guitarist and a very good mimic. He could play Sid guitar better than Sid. However, Peter and Andrew conceded, and after only the odd outbreak of recriminations, the partnership was dissolved. Sid's suggestion for resolving any problems, by the way, was to add two girl saxophone players to the lineup. So, um, there you go. <laughs> but but you know, contrast that with and you know, I I, I was regaling Ken. Again, before we were on air, I've been fixated. I've already listened twice to The Lost Art of Conversation, which is this four part interview podcast series with David Gilmore talking about, um, you know, his his version of Floyd, 1987 to hmm. um, to ni- uh, 2019. And, and the beginning of that story is they're trying to record a momentary lapse of reason and, you know. David, in a, in a very polite way, you know, says we were in the middle of a very significant lawsuit at the time. Mm. And and so I just, I, you know, having heard that recently and contrasting that with this story, it, it seemed noteworthy.
1: I love on the wikis they describe when Gilmore joined the band, Pink Floyd performed briefly as a five-piece group from 12 January till the 20th. So, this is only eight days for a handful of shows. Gilmore played and sang while Barrett wandered around on stage <laughs> occasionally <laughs> joining in with the playing. <laughs> I, I mean, I've had that sensation with 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 different groups, so it would be fun to walk outside, go listen during sound check, and come back and be yourself again. but uh no, he did it for real,
0: yeah, I, apparently he was prone at that point to just completely detuning his guitar um yeah. You know, and stuff like that. So it, it's, you know, and, and obviously it, it, it turns out to be, you know, sort of a sad cautionary tale. And, you know, you wonder. So another thing that I, I think we need to point out is a saucer full of secrets. Um, the, the album art was the first designed by one Storm Thurguson, who would go on mm. to um, create the studio Hypnosis. Or as Gilmore says, hypnosis with the G. <laughs> you know, I, I just I find that interesting because you know there's such a deep connection with with Storms' visuals and and Pink Floyd's music. You know, I, in in some ways it 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 is probably equal to the connection between Roger Dean and Yes. I would say. So, you know, I think that's something I'd like to sort of keep an eye on as we go forward. Mm. Um, and and you know quite frankly the the next album that we will get to in, in next episode more has what I find to be a very, very striking Thor uh, storm cover. so mm. shall we track by track here Let's track by track. so we can start with uh, "Let there be more light now. I think this is, you know, this is a pretty stellar way to open an album. It, it has, we, we talked on the last episode, um, you know, uh, when they would have this sort of um, ritualistic, you know, presentation in terms of... of of the the vocals and, and whatnot and, and i get that same sort of feel here you, you have the impression that there's there's some larger ritual going on that you know you're kind of a part of and and it creates this for me this kind of cool kind of vibe i, I dig it and you know again maybe this is some of the the psychedelia coming in um you know and having not partaken myself i'm not in a posi- position to uh really to really speak of it but maybe you know it had you know additional layers of import in 1968 I
1: don't know Hmm. Hmm. I just dig the baseline I, I, I dig the fact that Waters is digging in and he's clearly developed some bass dexterity that he didn't have in the previous album some consistency and uh it's fun to play along with and i'm actually um thrilled with a couple of the changes a couple of the chord changes are a little surprising now it does repeat i don't know four or five times it repeats a little bit more than i think but this is i i would say water's digging in his heels for these long form songs that he likes so much
0: mm. yeah and, and you know it's it's you know here again it's and this is the start of you know like Roger as the creative force, right? And he's we, we sort of I sort of gave him a little bit of grief uh, on the last one for um, take up thy thy stethoscope. Blah, blah, blah. And you know even though musically I liked it, it was you know fairly basic and the lyrics were abysmally basic. But you know, he's he's making great progress here in, in a relatively short amount of time. So yeah, I, I just I, I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan. Much like um, much like Piper, I think I think this album is tracked in a very, you know, I don't want to say clever, but in, in a very effective way. I, I think they they sort of line things up in a way that that takes you on a little bit of a journey and, you know, at the same time, I think packs a lot of the really, really good stuff right up front, so you're, you know, all happy about it.
1: Hmm. And they managed to get three vocals on here, Wright, Waters, and Gilmore. So it's a Waters pen song, but it seems that Wright takes the lead with uh, help from Waters and Gilmore.
2: And I and I love how that happens because it, they they one of the coolest things about bands in the in the '70s was that they they had multiple vocalists mm-hmm. and and we, I know we're going to talk a lot about the Gilmore Waters thing and I think we were passing around the in the text today about Wright's vocals and 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 how terrific they are to the overall sound but I love how that just kind of plays out here. Like, you know, it's very much, as I said, if you're listening to this like me and in the back of your mind, all you can think about is when can I listen to Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, Animals in the Wall. Um, (laughs) It really, it really, it foreshadows that, which is really cool. My favorite thing about this song, though, is like this Ken used to give me in high school, Ken used to give me these tapes, these cassette tapes. And when I say high school, like ninth grade, probably tenth grade. And there would be these tapes that he would make in his in his room, and again, I guess Ken, you had like two boom boxes, and you would like record something on one and then play the boom box and record that on another while you were over like overdubbing you're like making a you know a multi-track recording out of two two boom boxes. And um they all remind me of the way this song starts. There'd be just like this totally cool riff. Like it would be really jam and there'd be some kind of like a <laughs> melody solo going over it. And just when you were like buying in, it would completely change to something <laughs> different. <Yeah. laughs> and the, and the vocals would be coming in in different ears because, you know, you know, you, you kept recording. It was, and, and it takes me back to, to that kind of, that kind of vibe. Like, it's just that, you know, it's like, so like desperate creation, you know, like, you you have to record this because you've got this great idea and so much so that you're using two boom boxes to try to, <laughs> to try to, uh, you know, to, to accomplish it. I, I kind of <laughs> love that feel to this song.
1: Now I'm just desperate to make my sound card work. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah. I
1: mean, um, it, uh, they, I mean, They're no longer at uh, Abbey Road for a lot of this, right? Didn't they uh, move on? But it's still, you know, 68 and it's still got a lot of 60s charm. And uh, I'm down. I love the vibe. I love that Mm -hmm. feeling. Yeah. And then then, just when I think these guys are a little too out there, remember a day reels me Mm -hmm. back in.
0: Yeah, remember day. Now, remember day apparently was a holdover from the Piper sessions, and we had also talked on the group text about Richard Wright's vocals, and I, you know, it was one of those things. You know, when you when you grow up and you talk about the 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 core four or whatever we're going to call it, Paul, uh, you know it. It's one of those things, at first blush, you don't necessarily think that, that Wright plays, a, you know, a big role in that. Right. Um, how – and so I wasn't really expecting maybe a lot out of Richard Wright. And what really tricked it for me – and this is this is, you know, one of the things that I find kind of annoying about talking about this album is they had so many single songs that were recorded at the same time but aren't on this record – so I came across um, a video for Paintbox that that Richard sings, and I just I really jam on his voice. I really really enjoy it. So when I was listening to this, I was like, oh yeah, you know, because now I'm like, oh that's that's Richard Wright. That's I love mm. the way he sings, and it it has you know I think this is as close to full-blown west coast u.s hippie music as you're going to get like you know obviously i keep thinking um <laughs>
1: it's so cool great. <laughs> i did a shit job on last week's episode because i didn't play along with the track i think with his pink point stuff if you like jam along to it you can really like
0: experience it at a new level dude <laughs> <laughs> i um I kept thinking of time of the season, obviously, I think probably because of the, uh, the drum part. Mm. Um, mm. but there's, there's something about the, the, the vocal hook that, that is a little similar to that as well. But I mean, again, here, I think we have two, you know, catchy accessible sort of songs that are, you know, a little different from each other, but again, it starts, it starts to sort of illustrate, um, you know where we're going to go with this band, and it's it's spectacular. Yeah,
2: it's funny about the vocal thing that we're talking about. I uh, I, I, I never realized, uh, Rich. <laughs> 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 Oh my a, gosh. She
1: got a jam with this part, I'm telling you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's great. I just um I remember not not really having a clue about Richard Wright singing, right? And and I remember watching I want to say it was whatever video was it delicate sound, sound of, of thunder, thunder that accompanied it, yep the exactly And I rem, and I'm watching the video of them doing time. And in the the breakdown of time the camera goes over and he starts singing and I'm just like sitting there and on my sofa going, wow, that's (laughs) him all this time. I didn't even realize I've even seen them perform this like three times live and I haven't even realized it. Right. And, um, cause I was so freaking far away and, um, (laughs) and that having that realization is, is perfect for going back and listening to, cause you know, I start listening to remember a day and instantly I'm like, oh, this is Richard, Wright. This is awesome. Yeah. And, um, this this song is is terrific, dude. And the chords, they smoke. Mm. I'll, I'll have to learn it. I'll have to. Maybe we will have our in our show notes. We'll have a, a link to Ken's YouTube video on how to play "Remember a Day." I like that idea.
1: <laughs> cool. Yeah, now, and they li- I'll give you that um, time for a season because just that that vamp. Yeah, I could see
0: that kind of breaking into uh, time of the season. That gets us into set the controls for the heart of the sun. Now, you know, this was one of those things that, you know, and again, by my own admission, I was not familiar with with the early part of Pink Floyd. So when we spoke with with Joe Cass of Total Mass Retain about uh, his early Floyd experience as well as, as the Nick Mason show, he He pointed this one out specifically this was something that was was on that set list and I believe it, yeah I'm pretty sure it's on echoes as well so i've I've heard this song maybe more as I've been sort of doing my immersion technique and on at first blush right when you get a song like this that is is more ethereal and um you know maybe less traditionally structured than some of the others it's so easy to almost just dismiss it out of hand as you know you know sort of formless noodling if you will but this song i think is actually quite um controlled and and you know actually a, a really really solid example of how you can have a well crafted song that is ethereal and you know i will contrast that with the title track where i think it is just a bunch of of mindless noodling and you know i just everything about set the controls for heart of the sun just it's it's spooky it's eerie it's it's all sorts of things like i have literally spent you know, the better part of, of three days trying to figure out exactly how many different instruments they're using to make very similar sounds.
2: Reading uh, different things about the band on the wikis, uh, one comes away with the, with the feeling that, you know, being in the studio and, preoccupying yourself with creating just noises and sound effects was an actual legitimate contribution to making these records um in fact i want to say nick mason actually talks about how as as time progresses in the band and particularly interestingly enough when they get to those big four and he's he's contributing less to the creative process, but more he's spending more and more time working on sound effects and uh, and noises and and things like that. Um, I agree with you, Joe. I, I this song is so cool. It it like um, I can't believe it's only five and a half minutes long. If you would have <laughs> asked me, I would have probably said it was ten minutes. It 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 sucks you in and t- it lets you travel places. It's just got such a vibe and such an atmosphere to it, and uh, it kind of reminds me uh it kind of reminds me of like what sometimes what tool tries to do today, albeit in a much heavier heavier setting um, and but it it just it's so entertaining and it's just like the same riff it's just the same exact riff the whole time, but it is so layered and so entertaining and so interesting um it's 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 the highlight of the album for me strangely
1: not with not enough material to fill the album's last 12 minutes the band started piecing together several pieces of material that was to become the title track of the album
0: yeah that that's interesting too and we'll, we'll get into that that has an interesting sort of thing but you know, Paul. To your point, you know, and that—that's what I was trying to to say. Like, I think side one of this record, these first four tracks, absolutely, you know, irrefutable as mm. as being phenomenal.
2: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat>
0: so, Ken, what are what are your thoughts on set the controls for the heart of the sun? I mean, does this speak to you or not? Waters rightfully earns his
1: place. Um, he's, he's bass heavy. Uh, he's got good feel. Um, he handles the vocals exclusively. They they, 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 he does such a good job. They don't need to cloud it up with backing and whatnot. He just kind of does that little speaking thing and it, it, it stands out on its own. Um, and I don't get bored. How many minutes is this? It's like uh, five and a half. That's and I it. Don't, and I don't think I'm ever bored.
2: And there's not, there's not like there's a shit ton going on, really. Like with from a melodic perspective, right? It's really right. impressive. And like you can say, you know, you could say, <clears throat> I know you're currently having sort of a struggle with um, Nick Mason and his um, ability to to tell a story, Joe, but like. How badass, how badass is it when he's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to put a band together and, and I'm going to go tour and play a Saucer, a saucer Full of Secrets. We're going to play Set the Controls for Light of the Sun. Let's do that. Like, I mean, I, who does that in this day and age? It's fantastic.
0: It is fantastic. Absolutely. 100%. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not actively mad at Nick Mason. I just... There have been a couple of instances in my life. He's, he's no Mike Rutherford. Is what is? I, yeah. is what I'm getting. <laughs> I mean, you know, Mike's and, and Mike didn't go as in depth as I wanted him to. But man, it was a it was a good read. I was able to tear through that, and I just I I don't know what Nick is trying to tell me, and it's it kind of makes me sad a little bit.
1: Mm, maybe he's spinless. He's trying just to be a neutral voice. Um, I will say I caught a quote maybe you guys can corroborate for me um one of my sources either the comfortably done book or the 33 and a third series said that mason was a very lucky person who experienced luck early on and still continued to experience some luck and admitted at some juncture that he did not necessarily work that hard for where he was does that does that corroborate
0: it does um and i hadn't i hadn't gotten into it uh, cuz i didn't want to you know crap all over him but he 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 basically in in the beginning of his book and he's talking about as he's learning how to play the drums and everything else and and he basically says yeah i couldn't really be bothered with you know learning all that stuff you know which kind of explains <laughs> why pink floyd drumming is the way it is <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's busier it's busier even back in these days though he's 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 much busier in his approach
0: and and one of the things that that ken and i had talked about um on the last episode he makes a a specific point of about this time i don't know if it was 67 68 something like that but he makes a, a very specific it could have even been 66 he makes a very specific point about them or some of them going to see cream and just Mm. being blown away by ginger baker. And, you know, so I I think he was getting influences at that point that were, you know, sort of pushing him in one direction. And, you know, I I think that's maybe what we're talking about In, in the lost art of conversation. Gilmore has a, just a fascinating quote about Nick Mason and he basically he he describes Nick as the best drummer for Pink Floyd <laughs> which you know <laughs> that, I love that that is a very carefully you know uh couched statement uh for that but you know at at the same time it's it's kind of hard to refute well i know people like to be- to, to to beat on
2: Ringo's star um, I'm I'm a I'm a Ringo Starr apologist, and I think that I think that it, that's a very fitting description. I you know what what would Pink Floyd be um, without Nick Mason? I mean he he's perfect. The stuff that he does in these songs is perfect.
0: Yeah. And and it doesn't it doesn't clog up the lanes, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and that's the beauty of, of progressive rock, right? You can, you can interpret it in different ways and you can have three members. You can have four, you can have five, you can have whatever you can have, you know, multiple virtuosos. You can have just one virtuoso being, you know, supported by, by the rest. There are a number of different ways that you can do this. And, you know, I, I, the other thing that kind of comes up in that that podcast, and we, we probably need to move it along here, but you know, the, the guy's a bit of a the interviewer's a bit of a sycophant, but he he makes the comment that there's something special that happens when the members of Pink Floyd play together. And I think when when you talk about, you know, even these early albums, but certainly that that main sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's undeniable. And it, you know, it it carries through maybe a little less on a momentary lapse of reason, and we'll talk about that. But certainly I think it it comes back in spades on the division bell. So mm-hmm. there there's something about the way that that these musicians interact with each other that just works. I, I think I think it's undeniable.
2: Yeah, I I, I love it. And I think that being as experimental as they were with, you know, albums like this and some of the, and the, some of the creativity that we're about to get into, I, I think it, 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 it fosters that overall, right? I mean, you're going into these cool places and everyone's just kind of, kind of at this point, it feels like everybody's kind of letting everybody do just their thing, you know? Yeah. Um, And I, and I think it really, uh, really fosters that and, and and we'll 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 get to uh, cash in on the dividends later. I love that I just learned about a new podcast, Joe, The Lost Art of Conversation. And what's even better than learning about a new podcast is learning about a new podcast when there's only four episodes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to get you don't have to be like, oh my god, I got to listen to fifty episodes.
0: I wonder which one all this great stuff with David Gilmore's is on. There's only no, four episodes. It, it's four episodes, and they're they're segmented beautifully. And mm. um, I was telling Ken before we were on air, I could listen to Gilmore speak for days. Oh, and, yes. And Poe Powell, um, Storm's partner in hypnosis, has some just fantastic recollections of, of his time working with Storm in the band. And it, it's I, I just find it fascinating. I've already listened to all four episodes twice. And I, wow. I'm sure I will again.
2: Impressive. Well, I'm going to put it in the show notes. We'll see how many episodes there are by the time this is released. And um, oh no, it's done. That's it. Oh, they're only uh, they're only doing these this many, huh? Yeah, okay.
0: it, it was it was very. It's it's an interview that was done specifically to support uh, the Pink Floyd the Later Years box set. So it, it's it's almost a commercial in a way. But gotcha. it's, it's it's the best commercial you could ever imagine. So this is fascinating. So I love it.
2: And so David Gilmour did a a similar thing. He did a three uh, episode podcast when he was putting his guitars up for auction. Yep. And and the same thing. Like I literally I listened to those those uh, podcasts to go to sleep at night (laughs) (laughs) because what would what is better than listening to David Gilmour talk about fucking guitars while you're trying to go to sleep? I I mean,
0: I don't think it was
2: epic. Well,
1: let's let's do the Gilmore. I, he's the epitome of good vocal technique. Even while he's speaking, he 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 resonates so far back in his throat with that um wonderful raspiness. Um, hearing about him in the book, he wanted so badly to do the music thing. Um, to the point of, I believe, they went to some golf club in France and and played throughout the summer and, and, and slept in some concrete bunker. And he got so sick but refused to go home. He ended up in the hospital in a, in a strange place. Even when he barely recovered, he refused to go back to Cambridge because that would be defeat. So he went to London in the hopes that he would find something. Of course, he did find uh, the gateway into Pink Floyd, but but he he truly earned his his place. He had a reputation in the scene as not only a guitar player, also a singer, and he he won over uh, some so, 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 you know not, not not just you know Waters and Mason and Wright, but 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 he, he had a reputation, so. Uh, Hats off to Gilmore. He 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 didn't just sneak in as an afterthought. He they really needed him, and he earned his
0: place. And and finish outside one with Corporal Clegg. Now, Paul, you had an interesting observation to which you have already alluded here on this episode regarding Corporal Clegg. which you? It is true. <laughs> it is true.
2: So first of all, what you know, this is when. You know, we've heard we've heard uh, reference to Lucy in the Sky up till now, but this is the first time where we're sort of back in you know what I call Beatles mode, you know, Sergeant Pepper mode. Um, but there's this like you know riff and the the vocals and the the vocals are switching, but it comes to this like s- sort of B part, and um,
1: mm, yes. the
2: very first time that I heard. I heard this progression. The first thing I thought of was waiting for the worms in the wall. And, you know, I, I played it for you and, and, you know, Ken, you sort of were like, yeah, it's a typical progression, you know, makes sense. But like, to me, it's just so funny because again, listening to this thinking, when am I going to get to listen to the wall and all those other songs? And this comes out, I'm thinking, wow, even like the, even the rhythm of the vocals seems to to uh reflect that same sort of feel. Um the only difference is there's like this distorted wah wah guitar and then it um it sort of disassembles instead of sort of the the minor riff from the wall it sort of disassembles into this like uh pet band, jug band. I I'm I'm not sure what kind of you know little mini orchestra you call it but um so yeah, it just struck me as wow, like it's almost like here we are kind of going back into like Sergeant Pepper mode, but then in the middle of it all, we just like whoop drop a little bit of the wall in there
0: and then and <laughs> just, then get right back to it. Just a little bit. You know, this is kind of like the, the first manifestation of what will become late model uh Roger Waters, right? He's he's he, he he's got something to say, and and obviously. You know, I don't know, maybe this is stupid, but you know, the, the loss of, of Roger's father in the war seemed to have a very profound impact on Roger. Yeah. And, and this is, I think this is kind of like the the first time he sort of puts his foot in that water. I like this song a lot. I think it's very catchy. There are some aspects to it that kind of drive me crazy. Um, I think some of the, the noisy guitars over the, the verses I find very distracting. It's like it's it, it almost goes atonal in, in a couple places. And I'm like, Ugh. and But, you know, I, I, I can kind of deal with that. And then the other thing that kind of sets me off is I find the kazoo at the end to be a little off-putting. Although, at the same time. I'm able to sort of understand why it's there, and sort of the the general level of irreverence it brings, which you know I I, I think I understand that, so it, I don't get too too caught up in it.
2: Wait, but, ca- walk me through that again, Joe. What? what?
0: So it, when I think about um, the the whole thing, right? There's. I when I think about Corporal Clegg, you know, you're 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 sort of balancing out this um, you know, this this the, these two parts, right? Because,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, there's there's the straight part of it, which is, you know, here's here's Corporal Clegg and and was didn't he do all these wonderful things and his mother must be so proud. But at the same time, there's this sort of contrary undertone which is basically saying yeah but this is all bullshit and i think yeah. i think the kazoo brings in that it sort of brings that irreverence to the fore and, yes. and mocks the whole pageantry of you know the war hero
2: yeah all right so i, I was i was tracking with you but i i, I wasn't I, I i wanted to make sure that I was, I, I think the whole thing is cynical. Like I, I, you know, I don't, I think everything, every line in this song is, is cynical. And I I, I couldn't agree with you more. The, you know, the, um, the band and in, in the, and in the way that it's brought in is, is just elevates it to the, to the next level. Um, the, the crazy guitars I think is just a sign of the times. I blame George Harrison. But,
0: oh <laughs> well, boy. we can we can give George a pass because he was a genius. the uh, The other thing that for me really stands about this album or this song is, you know, this is kind of like the first taste we get of those sweet Gilmore vocals, right? And you're like, oh, there it is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I mean, I know he's he's credited with uh, "Let There Be More Light," but it it it's not qu- it, to me it's not quite as prominent. As it is here, and and you know you start to get that that blending, and and again, growing up, I always thought it was simply Roger and David, but it, it may very well be Roger plus David plus Rick, right? And that that it just you know it's so delicious.
1: Let's tackle war. Um, Waters Roger Waters uh, once said that his father was a conscientious objector from World War II, but as the evils of Nazism became more and more apparent, his father went back to the conscription board and volunteered. Um, Of course, as you said, losing his father was quite traumatic. Um, Roger, I believe, was somehow in military school or some kind of organization to which he eventually became... Uh, conscious, conscious subjector. So the, the music is, is an afterthought to kind of already having lived it, I would say. Substantiation from the wikis. At 15 years old, Waters was chairman of the Cambridge Youth Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, having designed its publicity poster and participated in its organization. So, so the music truly is an offshoot of, of having lived it as a as a, as a, as a youth.
0: Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that, you know, came from his mother as well in terms of her um, political leaning. So, you know, it, it's all come by naturally.
2: You know, I, for some reason, while we're talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking back to, I, I believe it or not, I'm thinking back to fish and early Marillion and how some of his, some of his early subjects in songs Sort of emerge fully in misplaced childhood and in um, clutching at straws,
0: Ooh. and
2: albeit it's a shorter span of time, yeah, I, that's that's what I'm thinking here. This is, like you said, Joe, the first, the very first seed of that, and you know, this set of topics here is going to. Um, you know sort of find itself in 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 the later albums and it's actually very very cool to hear it now and be like yeah this is major foreshadowing of of what's ahead
0: yeah i agree 100% a saucer full of secrets so this is 12 minutes of whatever it is filler it's credited as four parts something else syncopated pandemonium storm signal and celestial voices you know, it's, it's, I, I find it to be noodling personally. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not unpleasant to listen to, but it's not anything that moves me. You know, it, it's not maybe the best manifestation of what will become, you know, prog rock long form songs. But at this point, as we mentioned, they weren't progressive rock, they were psychedelic and, you know, maybe this is, you know, part of that that I just don't get. I don't know. Yeah. It's ironic, really. You know, in most
2: of our discussions with bands, it, you know, they, they had trouble containing all of their ideas. <laughs> their, their ideas were limited to time that was on the vinyl. Yet here we find the band is actually making up shit just so that they can, you know, print a vinyl record.
1: Well Richard stepped up. I mean, Richard is like the guy in the office who takes like the big project over the goal line on his own shoulders, on his own time. Like like it it, 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 it it's mainly this nice cycling keyboard bar and I'm surprised that the other guys weren't just yapping to get in there to play with him. But 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 it's it's a bunch of sound effects and Richard carries it over the goal line
0: there there is something else about us the, uh, actually this whole second half of this album that I will say. and I you know I need to sort of peek ahead a little bit. We were uh, again talking on the group text about the next album that we'll cover more in that I watched the movie that goes along with that, which is a terribly depressing, depressing movie. But I will say um, there's a lot of, of the music on that that record that is oddly compelling. And watching the movie makes it even more so. And the way that it's used in the movie, I think, is very, very clever. And, and again, we'll mm-hmm. get to that. But the entire second half of this album, to me, is a, a direct preface to... The most of the music that will appear on more certainly a lot of the instrumental stuff, um, I think flows from a saucer full of secrets and, you know, and and maybe in in some regards the other two as well. But but a, a saucer full of secrets does point to where they're going to go next. So when I listen to this now, that's the way I think of it. I'm, I just want to apologize for making football relevant.
1: References instead of rugby re- references, but I don't know <laughs> shit for rugby.
0: We, we don't know shit for rugby. <laughs> so we get back to, to Richard Wright with Seesaw.
2: Great. Yeah. Wait, Joe, I, I'm, I'm oh. intrigued by this movie the more, and I yeah. guess probably we, I should wait until we actually talk about the record, but this is good foreshadowing. Because if you're listening here and you've never watched the movie, you should take heart that it's okay that you don't watch the movie because without a doubt you have listened to at least four of the 1,001 albums that you should listen to before you die. <laughs> so, but the more I just searched more the movie trailer and I found a Roger Ebert in a review of okay. it. And I'll just, I'll just uh, uh, read a little bit. Uh, About what he wrote. He wrote, more precisely, it's about a kinky American girl who destroys her German boyfriend and in the process destroys herself. But why be precise? The boyfriend is played by as such a stupid Teutonic slob. We're glad to see him die. More Mm. is not, however, a lecture. It's more of a celebration. The message seems to be, sure, speed kills, but what a way to go.
0: (laughs) I don't know that I fully agree with that, but I I definitely see where he's coming there.
2: Hopefully it's available on Amazon Prime and I'll be able to watch it.
0: It is available on YouTube. Oh, there you go.
2: What's better than watching a full-length movie on YouTube?
0: Nothing. Um, (laughs) Back to Richard Wright. So back to Richard Wright on on Seesaw. You know, I, I... I honestly don't know what to say about this. Um, when you look at when you look at the lyrics, right? This is. I, I think Richard Wright had, at this time had his lane, and this is very much in that lane. Um, you know, there's there's lots of you know f- flower references and laughter in his sleep and selling plastic flowers on a Sunday afternoon. You know, it's, you know, eh, it's cool.
1: Oh, I just like the she goes up while he goes down kind of a thing. It's like, uh, it's like s- some kind of yin-yang relationship. I yeah. see a lot of imagery there, and it, it really sticks with me. And, and I have to wonder if there's Sid woven into this. And I just dig the way he executes the vocal. I mean...
0: Yeah, they're, they're very snazzily dressed at this point, I'd like to point
2: Snazzly. out. Snazzily? Look at those <laughs> Harvey Highwasters on Roger Waters there.
0: <laughs> I know, right?
2: <laughs> he looks yeah, just the, so unnatural. The weird thing about this song for me is that this song, I mean, it, I, I mean, th- listen, these, these first records sound dated. Like, it's no doubt that these are late 60s recordings, right? Oh, yeah. But Seesaw, like, if... If I could, like, if someone said, "Hey, you know, play me a song that your parents were listening to when you were born," like this song sounds like whatever it is that I'm thinking of. It just, it, you know, <laughs> the the heavy like rights right singing is very heavy to me. It's very, which is, and it's fine. Um sort of the high voices in the back. It's just, it just has that to me, this is the most dated sounding pink Floyd stuff. Is there an orchestra on this or is it just like keyboards? I don't, I don't know. I can't remember, but it's just whatever. It just
0: sounds very dated. I believe this is the one with the, with the orchestra. Um, Yeah. And I apologize that I don't remember that, but it's been a heck of a day.
1: There's actually some thought into this. That the lyrics in the third repeat, she grows up for another man, and he's down. So that's it's interesting. You've got hmm. this, this, this flighty girl, all can see he's not there. So the first guy is not there, and then she finds another man. So there's some kind of progression going on in here. It's a little deeper than I originally thought.
0: And and then we finish out the band with the the last of our Sid Barrett songs, Jug Band Blues. Mm-hmm. And Sid. It, it's, it's, you know, it, again, we don't have a huge catalog to remind ourselves, but this is obviously more Sid than anything else that we have here on this record. And, you know... There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think at this point, you know, when after you've you've digested, you know, set the controls for the heart of the sun and you have some of the influence of, of Gilmore coming in. You know, for me personally, I, I don't know that I'm clamoring for more Sid Barrett at this point. I, I like where the rest of the guys are going, but that's just me and I don't want to be a total jerk about it.
2: Yeah, it's kind of weird because I'm with you 100%, but you kind of figure when you think about, when I think about this and I think about the fact that when they broke the band up, the managers took Sid and basically banked everything on him. And you think about like the crazy success that the Beatles had and and how much they're, I mean, and maybe this wasn't even in their thinking, but, you know, the the more commercial type sound that was going Uh, 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 compare that with, you know, the tracks that you mentioned, Joe, the ones that were like kind of going gaga over set the controls for the heart of the sun. Like you can understand why they thought, yeah, you know, we'll stick with, uh, with the pop star here. And, um, and based on that picture you just showed us, you know, he, he probably had the best look of all of them as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Like, it's not, it's not that I don't like it, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, more music that's less of Sid. Not in a bad way. It's just, just how I'm feeling.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that, like I, I think you said that really, really well, right? It's, it's not to detract from from what Sid does. It's just suddenly I have a taste for something else.
1: Well, the lyrics are eerily foreshadowing of what's to come. Uh, there are three stanzas. Uh, I would like to present to you the first two. It's awfully considerate of you to think of me here. And I'm much obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here. And I never knew we could be so thick. Oh, <laughs> your, your puppy
0: is thick, too. <laughs> That's a nice. Thor has birthday. some opinions.
1: <laughs> Thor. Thor. Yeah. That has something to say here about Sid. And I never knew the moon could be so blue. And I'm grateful that you threw away my old shoes and brought me here instead dressed in red. And I'm wondering who could be writing this song. I don't care if the sun don't shine. And I don't care if nothing is mine. I don't care if I'm nervous with you. I'll do my loving in the winter. Uh, There's so many angles that you could... Look into this prism and see the colors you want, but it, it's easy for me just to take the angle that he truly doesn't care.
2: Given oh, everything well. we know, given everything we know about him, you know, and you know, so many years later for sure. I don't know how many producers would have been okay with those lyrics, um, but I guess if you're in a space, you know, space band. And psychedelic band that that kind of plays into it, right?
1: It's almost the pink character foreshadowed uh, yeah. from the yeah. wall. Just, just, just. I mean, I mean, I mean. You, yeah, yeah. I'm grateful that you threw away my old shoes and brought me here instead, dressed in red. It's almost like other people are dressing him up to be somebody he's not.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Going to be that's awesome, Ken. Because I, I, I definitely. I definitely remember uh, reading about um you know Roger Waters talking about during this time when they were you know deciding whether they should pick him up for the show or not literally you know barging into his room wherever he was and you know pulling him out of bed and getting him dressed much like in that scene <laughs> in the wall where they bust yeah. into the you know comfortably numb scene and and um yeah you're right it, it it's uh it's all there.
0: Well, that's awesome. So, you know, this is, again, I think for a sophomore effort, this is extraordinarily solid. I think it really, it, it, it takes a big step forward from maybe what they were. They're, they're starting to really understand their, their craft a little bit. And it, it really does speak to where they're going to go. Not only immediately into more, which is very clearly shown, but as as we've pointed out as well, even further down the road, which is very very cool. Um, you know, I, I part of the thing I love about about doing the palaver here is is these sorts of these arcs, right? That when you when you go back in as a grown person with some, you know, mental capabilities and time on your hands, you can kind of see things that maybe you wouldn't have caught before. So I think it's cool. and Very much appreciate the, the vocal stylings of one Richard Wright. And again, we have to give proper credit to Sid Barrett for getting us here. And, um, you know, I, 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 I said in the last episode, and I'll say it again. Even despite what I said in, in earlier here, you know, I, I didn't under—I didn't know these these early albums. I didn't know what Sid did, and I was very pleasantly surprised to find that I really like a lot of what he did. So, you know, I, it, it's not to say anything bad about it at all.
2: Here, hmm. here. Hear.
0: <laughs> Any thoughts from you guys uh, closing on this this album, uh, Saucer Full of Secrets, Nick Mason's favorite? Uh, you know, I remember when
2: you guys interviewed Joey, and he, you know, he was talking about some of these songs, and I was thinking, God, like, what have I been missing all this time? It, you know, it can't be that, all that, like... <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's been it's been a fun couple of weeks, you know, diving into this and, and you know, having a completely new perspective and a completely new take on this band that I've loved for so many years. And I, you know, I think, as I mentioned in the group chat, like, I just can't believe how long I've missed all of this. And uh, it's been so much fun. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, Nick Mason will tour the Saucer Full of Secrets again, and I'll, and I'll get to see, uh, see it all happen.
0: Yeah, that would be fantastic. I, uh, I you know, I, I would love to be able to see him actually get to go to the show this time. And, you know, the good thing is, is that now I'm ready for it. I, I you know, I, I would not have been ready before. For, for right now, with regards to a Saucer Full of Secrets, I will thank both of you fine gentlemen for yet another enjoyable palaver <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: and we will exit with the guitar stylings of one Ken Gregory <laughs> <laughs> we we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we welcome, solicit, and look forward to your thoughts, your comments, your questions, your feedback, and your concerns. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Facebook, We are at Progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify and we are as always hosted on SoundCloud so until next time thanks for listening it's like being
2: at band practice all over again (laughs)
1: Well, point well taken. If we can't fucking do Chris Squire's fish out of water, what the fuck are we doing going back to Sid Barrett? I say, damn it, Chris Squire first.
2: So they did a review on Acceleration Theory Part 2, and the giant quote in the middle of the fold says, this makes Elias of Sunhillow sound earthbound.